This is Rich Procida, producer of Bible Study for Progressives. This coming Saturday, August 28th, at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, we will be premiering Democracy Under Fire. The show addresses the threat to democracy in America and around the world and asks what we must do to save democracy. Our first episode will be devoted to understanding the threat and asking what we must do to save democracy. We are part of the Truth and Democracy Coalition, and we are participating in the March on for Voting Rights on August 28th. Go to March on for Voting Rights. Org to find a march or activity near you. Democracy Under Fire will be aired on Facebook and YouTube on August 28, 2021 at 7 p.m. Pacific Time. Let us know you'll be coming. Like the Truth and Democracy Coalition page and join our group on Facebook and like my YouTube page, Rich Proceda. We are facing an unprecedented threat to American democracy and the collapse of democracy around the world. That's why I founded the Truth and Democracy Coalition. And I'm doing this show. Democracy under fire. Because... This coup attempt is ongoing, and we must be prepared to fight for democracy, to defend the Constitution if we want to keep our rights and have a say in how we are governed. Welcome to Bible Study for Progressives, a show where moderates, liberals, and leftists of all faiths and ideologies come together to discuss scripture, spirituality, and politics. We engage scripture in its historical context, plumb its depths for wisdom and guidance, and apply its lessons to current events and social issues. Whether you're a liberal evangelical, a New Age spiritualist, a social justice activist, or a postmodern theologian, there's something in this show for you. Come, be energized in spirit and mind to understand the word and what it means to be a spiritual person in today's world. Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In the last episode, the Pharisees said that Jesus is only able to cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons or Satan, 
I made the case that in modern parlance, they are calling Jesus a terrorist. Jesus responds by saying that he may not be a terrorist, but he is a thief who is plundering their house, tying up the strong man and rescuing the hostages that they have kept captive there. I also made the argument that Jesus and the ruling class or retainer class Pharisees diagnose the situation differently. The Pharisees understand evil as resulting from general lawlessness and disorder, which threatens the status quo. Jesus finds the root cause of the problem in the status quo, in the behavior of the ruling houses. In this episode, Jesus draws out the implication of this diagnosis. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 31 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. begin with Matthew 12, 33-37. Either make a tree good and its fruit good, or make a tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak of good things when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person brings good things out of a good treasure, and the evil person brings evil things out of an evil treasure. I tell you, On the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It's easy for us to misinterpret these verses, especially when they are disconnected from the verses that precede them. Because Jesus speaks of a good person and a bad person speaking from their hearts, we can easily assume that Jesus is talking about good and bad individuals. But in the ancient Mediterranean world, individuals represented groups of people, whole communities. These people speak out of the treasure of their community. I'll come back to that. Jesus has just been using the terms kingdom, city, and house all in parallel and in that order. Kingdom, city, house. Talking about them being divided and falling and being plundered. He is referring to the kingdom's of Israel and Rome, i.e. the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms that operate through violent patriarchal domination. Then he speaks of trees. Trees in ancient Israelite literature often represented nations or kingdoms or their ruling classes. That's how that imagery often worked. Jesus says, make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. Notice that these trees are made in a certain way. They are constructed either well or poorly, like government or a society is constructed either well or poorly. The fruit that Jesus speaks of is not merely the speech of individual men opposing him, but rather the speech of men who represent the ruling class. This speech proceeds from a bad tree, Their speech proceeds from ruling class ideology, ruling class thinking. He is saying that the whole tree is corrupt. 
the entire ruling class and their institutions are corrupt. This ruling class speech, calling him a terrorist, calling him an agent of Beelzebul, calling the liberation of an oppressed person evil. This speech is the fruit that reveals the deep darkness of the ruling class. Their careless words condemn them. Jesus says that they bring evil things out of their treasure. This is the third use in the story of this word, treasure. The first use was the treasure that the wise men brought to the baby Jesus. The second use of this word was when Jesus taught his disciples to lay up treasure in heaven and not on earth. In episode 12, I made the case that laying up treasure in heaven means sharing wealth with neighbors in need, mutual aid. That is laying up treasure in heaven. This word will be used three more times in Matthew. The next use will be in a parable about treasure hidden in a field. After that, Jesus will teach his disciples that they can be scribes for the new society, taking things from their treasure, which sort of parallels the usage of the word in this passage. And the last use will be when Jesus tells the rich man to sell all and give his possessions to the poor so that, as Jesus taught earlier in the story, he will have treasure in heaven. So we see that the treasures of this world only become the treasures of heaven when they are shared with the poor or with neighbors in need. Until then, those who hoard earthly treasure, the rich and the powerful, speak evil things out of that treasure. They speak out of their collective selfishness and greed, which is the spirit of that treasure. They are shaped by a system of selfishness and greed which forms their thoughts and their speech. And so they fail to see liberation when it is right in front of them. And they call Jesus a terrorist. They speak evil things out of their hoarded treasure. On the other hand, we will see at the end of chapter 13 that those who are trained in the wisdom of the new society, where everything is shared, speak good things from that shared treasure. Let's continue with verses 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so for three days and three nights the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. The people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah, and see something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon, and see something greater than Solomon is here. The ruling class scribes and Pharisees are losing the debate, so they fall back on asking for a sign, never mind all the signs that Jesus has already given them through healings and demon exorcisms, one of which they just witnessed. In response, for the first time in this story, the story of Jonah is explicitly mentioned. There was an allusion to it at the end of chapter 8 when Jesus, like Jonah, fell asleep in a boat on a stormy sea. 
But this is the first of two explicit mentions of the story of Jonah. Jonah's story is very important for Matthew's Jesus. According to this story, Jonah experienced his own sort of death and resurrection, being swallowed and then spit up by a big fish. And that is one part of the story that Jesus explicitly points to, Jonah's sort of death and resurrection. But Jesus also draws attention to Jonah's preaching, which brought the people of Nineveh to repentance. According to the story, Jonah nonviolently, through prophetic words, conquered the evil empire of his time. You see, the city of Nineveh, where he is told to go and call the people to repentance, was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was an intensely brutal empire. The historian Simon Anglin, if I'm saying his name right, the historian Simon Anglin writes, The Assyrians created the world's first great army, the world's first great empire. This was held together by two factors, their superior abilities in siege warfare and their reliance on sheer, unadulterated terror. It was Assyrian policy to always demand that examples be made of those who resisted them. This included deportations of entire peoples and horrific physical punishments. One inscription from a temple in the city of Nimrod records the fate of the leaders of the city of Suru on the Euphrates River who rebelled from and were reconquered by King Ashurbanipal. It reads, I built a pillar at the city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up inside the pillar, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes. Such punishments were not uncommon. Furthermore, inscriptions recording these vicious acts of retribution were displayed throughout the empire to serve as a warning. So it was into the capital of this empire, according to the book of Jonah, that Jonah walked, announcing to the people there, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The effect of Jonah's message, so the story goes, was that the emperor and the whole city repented in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus will similarly make a journey to the capital city, Jerusalem, the location of the Roman puppet government of Israel. He too will warn of the destruction of the city. But in Jesus' case, the leaders and the ruling class will not repent. So he says that the people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and condemn them. He also says that the queen of the south, i.e. the queen of Sheba, will rise up and condemn them because she came to listen to the wisdom of Solomon, and something greater than Solomon is here. Again, the wisdom tradition is invoked. Solomon, in ancient Israel, was the quintessential teacher of wisdom, and many wisdom books are attributed to him. The upper-class scribes and Pharisees would have understood themselves as heirs to that tradition. So again, Jesus asserts a superior wisdom to that of the ruling class. Additionally, Solomon was a king, in fact, the son of David, the literal son of David. Solomon was the actual literal son of David and the king of Israel. At the time of the writing of Matthew, Israel has once again been destroyed by a foreign power. So the wisdom 
and royalty of the ruling class has failed. Jesus is saying that something greater than Solomon's wisdom and the house of David are present in this peasant movement for a new society. It's easy for us in the modern West, affluent as we are and who are used to a hyper-spiritualized Jesus, to merely hear in these words that Jesus Christ, our spiritual Savior, is greater than even Solomon, who is also great and deserves our admiration. But in their context, in this honor-shame culture, where it is understood that Jesus and his disciples are common peasants, to say that their movement is greater than the great wise King Solomon is to challenge and attack the whole system and mentality that gave rise to King Solomon and that continues to venerate him. It is an assault on ruling class wisdom and heritage. Then Jesus says this, verses 43 to 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it wanders through waterless regions looking for a resting place, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings along seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and live there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So will it be also with this evil generation. To us, this sounds like a non sequitur. Jesus has been talking about Jonah and Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, and, and suddenly he is talking about demons returning to inhabit a person. And is he saying that the guy that he just liberated from a demon earlier in the chapter is going to end up worse than when Jesus first encountered him? What Jesus is doing here is continuing his debate with the scribes and the Pharisees. They said that he only casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. They understand Satan and his demons as the spirit of general lawlessness and disorder. And they perceive Jesus to be a threat to the order of law. So they associate Jesus with Satan. Jesus responds by telling them that he is, in fact, a threat to their social order. He tells them that their whole house, their whole tree is rotten, as can be seen from their rotten fruit. They have collaborated with the empire and with the elite, and he is attacking the whole foundation of their society in order to bind the strong man, as it were. If the strong man is not bound, Jesus says, if the whole foundation of injustice and oppression is not addressed, then all healing, all exorcisms are superficial or temporary. The person in Jesus' parable who is freed from demonic possession only to be repossessed is a double-layered image of a person and a house. As a person, this person represents the people who suffer under the brutal Roman occupation and exploitation by the upper classes. They suffer from hunger and various illnesses, as well as deep psychological and spiritual oppression. They can be treated and bandaged up, but that doesn't solve the problem. The root of the problem is in the larger context the empire and its ways, its spirit. Satan must be dealt with, not just the demons. A new society must replace the old. A new generation must replace the old generation. 
if we only heal individuals, rescue them temporarily from the economic and political forces that have ravaged them, then we have not addressed the root cause, and the backlash could leave people in a situation worse than when we began. And so the second layered image of the person as a house symbolizes the old society, the old kingdom. Whether Israel or Rome, it doesn't matter. It is any kingdom of this world that is built through violence and domination. Not only might individuals end up worse if the root cause is not addressed, but the whole society will get sicker. For example, if we attempt to address poverty with mere job training and education so that individuals can pull themselves up, but we don't enact major wealth redistribution and fundamentally reshape the way we think about inequality, then we have left the whole system intact to continue to create a divide between the haves and the have-nots. And in fact, we may have reinforced ideas of inequality by implying that as long as people have opportunity, as long as they work hard, they should do well, and they are entitled to anything they earn in this system. And those who are not successful, well, now it's their fault. And so the winners in the economic system build on their success over the losers who get further and further behind. And the end state is worse than when we began because now the winners have a new justification for believing they have earned their superior ranking in the economy. We cast out one demon, now we have seven. Another example. Many thought that having a black president of the United States signaled the end of white racism. A white house built by enslaved black people was finally housing a black president with his family as the most powerful person in the world. That demon of white supremacy had been expelled. But the exorcism was only superficial. And at the end of those eight years, seven demons named Trump moved in and the final state of the house was worse than the first. Of course, I'm not saying that the man Donald Trump is actually seven demons, but rather that the spirit that he brought into the White House is analogous to the seven demons that Jesus talks about in the parable. I don't say that lightly. My words are not careless here. I say this at a time when Trump has lost the election, but is refusing to concede and is firing and replacing top officials throughout the federal government, including the Pentagon. Most experts say that this attempted coup will fail, but the very fact of the attempt is alarming. But more to the point, not just Trump, but all the forces and entities that led to his presidency and the spirit that animates them were not dealt with. The strong man was not bound. We have much work to do. We must do better at diagnosing the problem and addressing root causes. We have to learn how to bind the strong man. My name is Bert Newton, and this has been episode 31 of Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. The music has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you can. Also leave us reviews. Thanks to all those who have done that. I really, really appreciate that. You can send comments or questions to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. I'm going to leave you once again with Murray Hammond's awesome rendition of 
that old spiritual. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come facing an unprecedented threat to American democracy and the collapse of democracy around the world. Democracy Under Fire will be aired on Facebook and YouTube on August 28, 2021 at 7 p.m. Pacific Time. Let us know you'll be coming like the Truth and Democracy Coalition page, and join our group on Facebook and like my YouTube page, Rich Proceeder. See you there, and thank you for listening. This has been Bible Study for Progressives. If you enjoyed the program, please subscribe to our podcast or put us in your favorites and write a five-star review. Tell your friends about us and share us on social media. Follow us on Facebook and click the donate button at modernlectionaries.blogspot.com. Your support 
will help us reach more people, produce more and better shows, and cover the cost of production. Feel free to send me a note or comment on the show. I would love to hear from you. Until next time, this is Rich Proceda. Thank you for listening.